Hi guys, today we are releasing a podcast dealing with a uh, Ahmaud Arbery murder in Brunswick, Georgia. Unfortunate uh, racist murder. And if you're tuning in, this is the Judson podcast where your friends are gathered to talk about faith, culture, and um, things that are important to us. I'm here with Tamara. Thanks for having me. A repeat guest of the podcast. And Scott, hey. who's doing all of our editing, actually. So thank you, Scott. And Jenny as well from Brooklyn. Hi there. I've, I'm glad we did it a few days after, a couple of days of anger and rage, I guess. So we're going to talk about this mainly from the perspectives of Black anger, expressing and dealing with it, as well as Black healing. Then we'll go move on to the point of, should Black people ally with others in fighting racism? If so, how can we decide who we want to work with and how can people prepare themselves to actually be allies? I did not watch the video because it's unnecessarily um, traumatizing. Although, because I am involved in civic uh, justice groups and there was a case in Montgomery County, Maryland, officer murdering someone that very likely was a mental health issue. We were able to email and tweet and other things like that to the county to get body cam footage released. So that's what the pressure, you know, you have to put on in our county. So for Ahmad, I did not watch the video. I saw a few in Black Lives Matter gaining media attention of Black people dying. But after a while, it becomes to the point where it's like, there's no point in watching it. It's just making yourself feel bad. And it, you feel like it doesn't matter how angry you are about it. So basically what happened with this case is Ahmad was jogging Brunswick, Georgia, People pretended that they are doing a citizen's arrest, even though to do a citizen's arrest, you have to actually witness a crime or be like basically an earshot of a crime. And someone who was being an idiot recorded, thankfully an idiot recorded it. You know, the parent was proud of their son for murdering him. No, wasn't it the father that did the shooting? It's unclear. I So I, this is Tamara, I did watch the video as a black woman and it was unclear who did the shooting. They both, we saw the father cock the gun we heard uh, a sh shot ring out when the sun went out of view with Ahmad, but it's unclear who actually shot the lethal shots. And of course, that's irrelevant. It happened in, at the end of February and 76, I think it was 76 days later, they finally arrested him and arrested them. And they only arrested them because of the police footage and obviously the national outcry. But originally the father and son walked free. And so if you read the police statement and if you look at the video, there's significant contradictions between the two. But the thing is the father was a retired police officer on the same force that was supposed to arrest him and a retired detective. And a lot of the prosecutors put on the case had several conflicts of interest. They both worked with the father and the son. And so it just smelled of a cover up. Um, and so those are the technical details of the video. They claimed a citizen's arrest based on burglaries, they said, that had happened, but there weren't any burglaries. And two months ago, some completely different crime had happened, but it was weeks and weeks ago. I was pretty much in a rage for two days, mainly because, you know, a little bit about Georgia, having family in Georgia, Tamara does. My grandma grew up in Augusta, Georgia. We know what it is. In a sense, the reason I don't think about the details of the case is because it doesn't actually matter because it only matters if people are willing to do the right thing. 
And when you have a fake racist police and DA and whatever system, the rules only matter to a point because, yeah, you just have to realize that underneath all of it is racist uh, violence and power, which has a long history. I think that was the main issue, the long history of it. And looking at the national coverage about Ahmad's murder, it does seem to be a little bit different from past um, shootings of black men. Because when we think about cases like Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown, there's clear defenders of the police force and of the use of violence. And here, does it make you feel any better? Or is there any kind of comfort in that it's, this seems to be like a universal outcry coming from both sides of the political spectrum? What makes me feel better is that they got arrested. I'll say I'm skeptical about the support from both sides. I don't trust it from the people who vote for racist leaders but are outraged about this case. And that's a partial victory, but I only let it be, you know, that. My first reaction about the arrest and seeing the universal outcry, quote unquote, the bipartisan outrage, if you will, was relief, which was quickly followed by another wave of anger because it was such a high bar to clear one. And two, these men went free for several months and we needed a leaked video that showed a black man being hunted like a deer for people to get angry when the mother gave the testimony that her son was jogging and that's all it was. And that wasn't enough. And so for me, it was reminiscent of all the other cases because unfortunately we do have a, a Rolodex, you know, to use a dated term of cases just from the past five years, six years, seven years of black mothers or, or, or black friends saying this was the case. And then you have the word of whatever vigilante or police officer um, say, well, this was the case. And we err on the side of the police officer or the vigilante. And you don't listen to the black pain of the people who loved the the person who's dead. And I, I think for me, again, this man had to die in order for a universal outcry to occur. Like, even though they got arrested, he's gone. Ahmad Arbery is not on this earth anymore. Why is he not on this earth? Because he was jogging. And so for me, it, it took me back. So as David mentioned, I'm from Georgia, born and raised. Uh, the only time I've not lived in the state of Georgia was in the past two years when I moved to um, the D.C. area. So this case struck very close to home. I've been to Brunswick, knew people who worked there. Um, it just reminded me of living in rural Georgia and going on walks myself in my predominantly white neighborhood and remembering near like right after the election just feeling extremely vulnerable um i used to feel the tranquility that these uh pretty upper class upper middle class uh neighborhoods the, the tranquility that they afford but after a while the tranquility became a, a signifier to me as a person in a black body as a it, it's a form of threat and so i don't know if you guys knew this but not only of course did ahmad die that day, but there were several 911 calls that were put in all around the neighborhood because he was jogging in that neighborhood from neighbors. And um, it just made me think about my own experience of, again, tra traversing these predominantly white neighborhoods and wondering if people called uh, 911 on me because mm. my body didn't fit. And again, you know, as we've mentioned several times, I have degrees, I have good job, a good job, I have 
obviously this like NPR voice, this diction, and I, I've been seeing the world. I've been to all these places where the fact is I'm a black woman in a dark skinned body in an anti-black world. And that can mean danger for myself because other people perceive that my body is a danger. And so um, it was something, the black pain that I felt from hearing about Ahmad's story was very familiar. Um, and it's just kind of a low level form of grief that was just ratcheted up. But I always feel that grief because if you go any to any of these places, you can feel um, unwelcome. One of my dreams would be that in America, we could fight racism as the church. But the reality is in America, the stumbling block of racism, which is what people used to build wealth, which is Jesus said, either you love money or love him. This is part and parcel of the majority culture church. And therefore, it's the anger of one of the main tools we have, we should have to fight racism is hijacked. How to pursue justice, how to use your power to serve as Jesus did, since he said he came not to be served, but to serve, given his life as a ransom for many. They're making it seem like Christianity has nothing to do with that. The anger is, to be honest, like, you know, I'm investing in being a Christian and also because of what Jesus calls for, making sure to be a bridge builder in some way. And then you see others not doing that. And then you see the consequences of that. I'm trying to tell people how great Jesus is. Meanwhile, the largest contention of that group is smearing his name. And I'm supposed to have some sort of Christian relationship with him. Since I do take, you know, if you don't forgive someone, you won't be forgiven. You know, I take that very seriously, which is why it's difficult. But I think at the same time, though, there are a lot of people who need church discipline. Like if those guys or their mom, for all I care, goes to church, they need to be disciplined. They need to be excommunicated if they do not repent. This, the lack of this is why there's such a fuzzy or fake view of Christianity and why people are provoking Black Christians to have to do way more than we should have to in fighting racism. Not as only is it fighting racism, but it's weighing how much we should partner with people and when we have to cut people off. There are verses in the Bible about when you have to cut people off. When you're talking about like churches and white people who you know, have, have not like lived up to their end of the gospel of justice, maybe you can give, just give some more background to that to give more clarity to the conversation. Well, there's a lot of laws about when people became Christians during slavery. People made laws to say that becoming Christian didn't release you from slavery, making the whole idea of being a brother or sister fake. Christians fought to preserve slavery. Christians fought to write laws preserving white wealth and dominance over other people. Uh, Christians were part of the KKK. For those who are higher class, they were part of things called white citizens councils, which was people who didn't want to bother with violence. I think the point is, there's a lot of information. I am not going to baby people. I'm going to work with people who are willing to put in the work. I think there has to be respect for that from people who are interested. That's true. These conversations in the church about what do we do with Black pain usually only come around because of mortality of Black bodies. Otherwise, this is not a gospel issue. It's not treated as such. The semantics or the ideologies behind justice are ghettoized. 
and treated as like fringe or frill issues in the church. And that's been my experience from growing up in the black church and then experiencing life in evangelical churches, both um, predominantly Asian American, non-white churches and a predominantly white church. Black issues happen or they are talked about in very um, pat or shallow discussions. And, you know, I understand because we all have contexts that we need to um, take some time to understand from each other. But I disagree with the approach of when racial justice comes up, um, we pay lip service and then leave it alone for the next Sunday. Um, and I think that's been my experience. Or you put- Or the, not even lip service. Yeah. Or, yeah, or, yeah. Sometimes they don't even mention it. That's right. I remember the week that Alton Sterling and Philando Castile died um, day one day after the next. Um, of course, there was a lot of outrage and protests. And that was the same week that uh, a black vigilante killed five police officers in Dallas. And I remember going to church. And like you said, Jenny, no one said anything until yep. the pastor's wife got up on stage and prayed and said, Lord, we pray for all the cities in America. And I looked in my head because I got excited because I thought she was going to say something. And then she said, especially Dallas. Mm. And that was just like, oh, so you can sympathize when police officers die, but not unarmed black men. Interesting. Wow. And that was just a shot to the heart. Yeah, it was it was awful. And again, that was like, you know, the beginning of the end of my time at the church. But like I said, I just think these conversations get pushed off as like, okay, yeah, we'll talk about the gospel. And then if we have time, eventually we'll talk about the thing that bothers you black and brown people, I suppose. But we have to always make sure to filter it through the gospel. But I, my opinion is that I think the gospel is sometimes is just a, a cover for um, the comfort of white or evangelical power structures and mm -hmm. how willing they are to yep. embrace the pain of people, like the raw pain. Because I think it's pretty. It's a pretty simple answer, and the, all the answers are there if you look. Ask someone, are you in pain? And have you been in pain for 400 years? And they can say yes. And then you say, what can I do to help you not be in pain? And then you heed their advice. I feel like it would be resolved. But the fact is we don't do it. And we use the gospel as an excuse, as a cudgel not to do it. Um, and so if we were just more honest about the fact that we don't care as a church, as an American church, and if we were just more honest about the fact that it's it's too tall of an order because it involves pain, it involves tough conversations with family, it involves giving up of wealth or prestige in these power structures. And sometimes we just don't want to do it. And so I think that's, I think that's what we need to talk about is I don't think race, the American church cares about race as much as they think they do. Yeah. And I think to move from there to the healing, I think that one of the reasons I know in other episodes we may talk about church unity, I think one of the main reasons I like the black church is because I can get healing in multiracial spaces. That's part of it. I think that's part of the healing, dealing with people who are outside of your group. If you're in a multi-setting or whatever, and the first thought after an issue is, how am I going to deal with people who don't care? I think people should be real about with themselves about whether they're able to actually heal and forgive. And I think discipleship in the black church, one of the main reasons for it really being able to exist as opposed to multiracial churches is like, we can go there outside of that pressure to explain to people who don't really care that much or continually weigh how much people care and what we should say to them. You know, just to say between us and God, 
can I forgive Christians who treat frivolously racial justice? You know, can I forgive Christians when I'm angry at them? And I'm angry at Christians for being the stumbling block to black people, to the faith. That's a huge lifelong battle. Well, let me ask you a question along those lines, David. Tamara as well. Like in your theological perspectives, uh, what do you see as the biblical relationship between anger and forgiveness? You know, between like discontent versus loving your enemies. I think it's fine to have anger. And, you know, as some people say, there's quote unquote white Christianity or quote unquote slave Christianity, which is the totality of the book is obey and forgive. And that's not Christianity, of course. Christianity includes God's judgment. There's multiple passages in the Bible, even in Revelation, where people are like, how long before you judge? Mm, that's a good one. Uh, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Just because God doesn't want us to go take these murderers out doesn't mean it's wrong for us to realize they deserve to die because they killed someone. That's normal. I think there's time to let yourself be angry about it if Jesus was able to pardon me, then yes, I can pardon other human beings. But that pardon is not the totality because the pardon includes God's judgment. It includes being thankful for God's judgment. I know that if these murderers get off, God will get them. If they don't repent, God will send them to hell. And I think that you can have a certain calm after you forgive because you know God will judge. But I think it's all about working for whatever justice we can in this earth, because there's a lot of passages in the Bible about that in the Proverbs. Speak up for those when you have the opportunity. Learn to do you know, right and correct what's, what's wrong, things like that. So I think it's about experiencing the anger, being able to forgive, knowing God will judge, and then pursuing whatever justice you can. I think there can be somewhat of a calm in doing that, because otherwise it will eat you up, you know? Yeah. The anger forgiveness theology that I've been taught is a broken one and I've had to redo it um, personally because anger is always a secondary emotion and it's a, a catalyst. I think anger for me, especially when it comes to race issues, covers up grief. And so what's been taught to me is that my anger and therefore my grief is invalid and I should skip some steps and jump to the forgiveness part. Um, and that, that was the theology that was taught to me, I think, specifically in the church. And that was what I witnessed growing up, you know, in the mm. 90s when we went to all these unity services. Um, and we had the white yeah. church and the black churches get together, hold hands, you know, sing songs, have picnics. And, of course, you know, racism was over in the 90s um, because of those unity services, um, because everybody on each side forgave each other. And so I think the problem with the, that structure was repairs didn't actually occur. There wasn't actually righting of wrongs. There was just apologies. There was a dishonesty and an incuriosity of what actually could make these relationships whole, both individually and systemically. And I think, if anything, they focused on the individual and didn't focus on the systemic. So I, mm. I believe, and you know, tell me if I'm wrong, the American church is the the morality or the moral narrative is dictated by white men. Our I guess our moral structure is dictated also by capitalism. And so the people with the most money and like the biggest microphones can dictate how we should address these issues. Um, and I think 
for me, as someone who is none of the above, what was told to me was, we're good. Everyone's good. Racism is over. Stop complaining about it or you're yeah. not being biblical and you're not being um, a good Christian because you're now you're making everyone uncomfortable. You're making your brother uncomfortable. And so that's not actual repentance. That's not actual giving up power on behalf of your neighbor. That's not actually loving your neighbor as yourself. That's making things much more comfortable for you in the moment. And so for me, what I've been doing is trying to redo my own sense of what anger and forgiveness is. I'm, I'm trying not to gaslight myself and say... Because my anger is not addressed in the church, it does not fit in the church. Um, what I'm doing is saying, because my anger is not addressed in the church, I should probably consider the theology that's being preached by the church body that I'm in, because this is an honest reaction to pain. And then go from there and say, like, Jesus, what is your heart for the people who are in her hurting, for the marginalized? And so my experience from re rerouting my theology of forgiveness and anger um, I've landed on Jesus being very honest about people's contexts and being very willing to run to the margins where people were and hear their pain and love this neighbor as himself by um, not observing the cultural power structures and how the anger and forgiveness was dictated by the people on top, but running to the marginalized and saying, how do you hurt and how can I fix it? So, What I'm hearing you saying is that Christians are by doing a unity service are actually undercutting or underselling the power of Christianity and making it just a, a cutesy, good feelings kind of thing instead of something that's active. Almost like when they do a, a token prayer for something that's going on in the news, but then there's no action behind it or will to change anything, you're actually undercutting the power of prayer by just praying and not doing anything. I would agree. Like what does genuine support look like versus support that is, as Tamara said, lip service, something that's just a flash in the pan. On social media, we're seeing people tweet out their support, but David, you're saying how, you know, that's obviously not enough. It's a first step, but it can't just be left at a first step. So for those who want to go beyond the first step and show genuine support, what should that look like? I think it should first look like being able to judge and evaluate yourself. Basically, if you have to err, err on the side that you may be deluding yourself. You know, one of the main issues in politics is uh, with progressives, and they're good progressives, and I, you know, supported Bernie and stuff like that. One of the main issues, progressives think it's, we have the right policies. You know, we read all of Martin Luther King. We have, we, read, we have the right policies. However, they're not taking seriously the depths of racism in the country in many ways because they think class-based solutions will deal with racism. And Black people, especially those who are not young, don't believe them. And they don't believe that America will accept class-based policies once they find out that Black people are being helped. And so I think the issue is not necessarily the theory of the policies, but it's be able to accept that there's levels to it. You can have the right ideas, but then you have to count the cost that you're going to have friction with your family. You're going to have to reconcile with the fact that there are people in your life who've taught you positive things, parents, cousins, and then they're racist and you have to deal with that. Just saying you have the right policies is part of the battle. It's building the trust that you understand the enemy that Black people are up against I think that's why, despite 
black people believing in more progressive policies, they didn't want to take a chance on progressives. As much as I think we all want people to um, you know, support political change, deep social transformation, asking people to change the way they vote, it's a tough sell. So I like what you were saying earlier, David, about just starting with your family. Because, um, yeah, for non-black families, there's a lot more racism in our non-black families than a lot of people think. Speaking as a black first-generation immigrant who has experienced anti-black sentiment, actually not just on the immigrant side, but on the other side, which is predominantly military, um, I've heard anti-black sentiment spew out of my relatives who are my skin color or darker. And so I think, you know, I, I've experienced that discomfort and I've also experienced the desire to not engage because there is so much um, to uncover. It's even exhausting. Yep. I think it's okay for us to acknowledge the human toll. And if anything, I think it makes it a little easier because it's like blackness or race is not just a political point. It defines people's way of life, unfortunately. And if we live. And if we live. I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, it, it legitimate. like I said, near near the end of my time living in Georgia, there came a point where I was like, am I being negligent slash reckless if I'm walking around my neighborhood, not in conspicuously bright um, exercise clothes, if I don't make it clear that I'm not a thug, quote unquote, is my life in danger if I'm not making moving about in a racialized way. And so I, I think real support comes from acknowledging how deeply racialized some people's lives are. And if your life isn't deeply racialized, it's because of privilege. And yeah, I, I think if you want to grapple with it, you have to acknowledge it takes time, just like learning a new language, just like learning a new instrument. And, you know, if you don't want to yeah. that, put that time in, just be honest about it instead of doing like slacktivism, you know, like, just because you like a tweet or um, share it doesn't mean that you are actually like anti-racist or actually for justice. Like I'm worried that I am falling into that category of someone whose response is not really adequate, like is the Christ-like response. You do see, oh, that's bad. You know, this is something in a group I'm in and I recognize this is bad or racist and I'm not doing that. And I'm working, you know, here, volunteering here that's my way. But I think what I would like to see is to see how people who are doing that can push it. Because if we don't, then, you know, like, for instance, if people just leave racist churches and that's it, then we're not doing enough about those racist churches. It's not like it's going to be something that's simple and easy. It's not. So what I would like to see is I would like to see Black people first be able to mesh together with NAACP, with groups that work with us from the ACLU. Um, Diddy mentioned a lot about voting. I know Killer Mike is on this. And, you know, basically be, people being more involved in the local elections. I think Black people being able to heal and being okay with working for Black progress. That's the first thing I'd like to see, you know, along with us being able to heal and process this so we don't go crazy while working for justice. For those who I think want to work on it with Black people, the more people who are willing to learn from Black settings, I want people to be okay with not just talking to Black people like me and Tamara who care about Christian unity, but talking to Black people who, you know, yeah, don't trust them, don't believe they have your best, if you have their best interest in mind. 
Um, because I think that's where you're not just doing something with like a, okay, I'm doing enough for you all, so you all should be okay with it, but like I'm actually committed to this. So more willingness to sit with discomfort instead of seeing it, getting angry, and then just moving on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Jenny, you mentioned you talked to people. I guess, how do you see pushing it as far as using the fact that you're a white person to forward justice? I mean, I feel like I'm just asking myself that question so much, trying to figure that out. I agree that sitting in the discomfort is important. And for Christian leaders to refuse to move past this, a refusal to let it go after one or two weeks, and absolutely a refusal to remain silent. I've had to wrestle with my own complicity in other people's oppression, being a heterosexual woman who, you know, had just that lo like low-key homophobia or disinterest in engaging with like queer culture. And that's something I've had to wrestle with even with like family members. It took mm -hmm. family members coming out and realizing that I wasn't an ally, even if, mm -hmm. you know, every once in a while I enjoyed, you know, I don't know, the Ellen show. I'm being facetious, but like I had to acknowledge the amount of privilege that I had in a heteronormative society and realize I had to put the work in, you know, those, again, those, those icky feelings that it takes to engage is worth it, the discomfort to become a true ally. And I think that's all I ask for people who are interested in delving into anti-racist work. And I stand in solidarity. You know, it's hard to be a human. Um, but again, I do believe the gospel is big enough to give us that the time and the stamina and the grace. And I think that's the beautiful part of the church is that we are called brothers and sisters. And the point is to engage with these uncomfortable topics together. Mm -hmm. What about you, Scott? How do you see yourself pushing it in a sense? My advice for people is, um, especially for non-Black people, is if there's anything that we could say is good that came out of you know Maud's untimely death is that it seems like there's a willingness to learn and mm -hmm. to listen. And so I, what I would say is for those who want to be led, for those who want to learn, the one who's leading you and the one who's teaching you should not be a person from the class of power. Like, if you only ever hear about racial reconciliation sitting in your white church, listening to your white pastor, I would say that's not good enough. If you go to a town hall meeting, all your council people are white, probably not worth sitting in. If the podcasters you listen to and the YouTubers and news broadcasters that you like are all white, you need to diversify, right? I think that's an important step for people. And it's been an important step in my own education um, to learn from, you know, black authors and black theologians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Definitely. I think it's the idea of if you speak someone else's language or use someone else's tools. What's the quote? Uh, yes, Audre Lorde, you can't dismantle the house. Yeah, the master's house using the master's tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, again, to close for Black people feeling anger, I think it's take some time. I would have had a different podcast if we did this two days ago. So don't weigh yourself down with, you know, how. You're going to talk to someone who doesn't agree with you. You know, just take some time and heal and pray and things like that. And then let people in, you know, as you are ready. Don't be afraid to give people standards for your own self-protection. I wanted to thank you guys, Tamara and David, so much for doing this. Because 
I don't, I don't even have words, but I'm just like, I don't know. I'm really grateful to you guys right now. I'm like tearing up a little. <laughs> I'm really grateful to you guys for doing this. Same. I think I only touched on it, but I think definitely having Christians who I can actually trust across race is definitely a healing thing and helps as well. So thank you guys. I agree, David. And I think also to close is, yeah, uh, take care of yourself, person of color who's hurting and, you know, specifically black people who are hurting in the face of Ahmaud Arbery's death and having to witness it. A 35 second clip of someone who looks like you die senselessly. Um, take care of yourself and um, don't define yourself by your pain, but definitely take time to grieve. And what I mean is you're not defined by your pain. You're more than just a, a political talking point. You're a full human and God sees your humanity. Jesus loves you for all of your fullness, all of your darkness, all of your beauty, and seek out the comfort of other Black artists or Black people who acknowledge that, and, you know, we will overcome. Amen. Yeah, I think that's a great way to end it. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. So, yes, this has been an episode of Judson Podcast. We're at Judson Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Check us out, and thank you.